Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, the French thinker Blaise Pascal wrote this when considering the ability of humans to think. Man is but a reed, the weakest thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed. The entire universe need not arm itself to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water suffices to kill him. But if the universe were to crush him, man would still be more noble than that which killed him, because he knows that he dies, and the advantage which the universe has over him. The universe knows nothing of this. A thinking read. It is not from space that I must seek my dignity, but from the government of my thought. I shall have no more if I possess worlds. By space, the universe encompasses and swallows me up like an atom. By thought, I comprehend the world. With me to talk about thinking, the necessity of doing it for its own sake, and its essential aspect as part of human happiness is Zena Hitz. She is tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis and the author of Lost in Thought, the Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, available from Princeton University Press. Zena Hitz, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's a delight to be here. Thanks so much for asking. So um, this is not a book about history, necessarily. It's a book of uh, very carefully written uh, popular philosophy, um, trying to get people to think philosophically about their lives. But it's about thinking, and that's sort of half our title uh, for the podcast, so it seemed uh, natural. <laughs> uh, it's a delightful book. Um, I enjoyed it so much. Um, I think anybody who's been through graduate school and, and thought about what they've been through recognizes a lot of your experiences. <laughs> um, but before we get to that, um, I want to push that back to the end um, and talk about sort of the human stakes that are involved in this um, as you express them autobiographically. Let's talk first about... Um, Something you used to do in chapter one, uh, you have a lovely discussion of different worlds, and you begin with a film called The Hedgehog, which I now really must see. Could you describe the the, the basic plot of the film and then maybe exegete it? Uh, absolutely. So uh, The Hedgehog is a, it's a French film based on a novel um, that was well known called the, the Elegance of the Hedgehog. Uh, and in the, the film, the protagonist uh, is a concierge in a uh, very well-to-do Parisian apartment building. So she's the working class person who coordinates the cleaners, who takes the mail, who swaps messages, who calls workmen, etc. for these people who really um, live and operate in a different world. So she has, she's, uh, the, the, the filming is quite striking. So she's uh, a very middle-aged um, overweight, wears slouchy cardigans. Uh, it's very unusual, you realize, to see a main character like that. Uh, and she has a, a secret life. So she puts on a, a working class front for her um, clients. And then she has a secret room behind her kitchen that's stuffed with books. And this is where Renee's, uh, that's her name, that's where her true life is, where her inner life is. And the plot of the film is uh, these two other residents of the building, especially a teenaged girl, who are disaffected with uh, the sort of shallowness of the upper class life that they're living in. They form friendships with this woman um, on the basis of books and ideas and philosophy and thinking about life. Uh, so for me, it's um, it, I came across it early on in my thinking about this, and I thought she was the perfect image for intellectual life in the following way. She um, is belittled by the world. So in the, in the world, in the sense of the competitive social world, she's, she's at the bottom. Uh, she's childless, she's middle-aged, she's a woman, she's working class. Uh, on the other hand, she clearly finds in this reading and thinking and pondering and philosophizing a source of dignity. It's, it's who she really is. 
And that this inner life and this source of dignity is a, uh, a vehicle for others to reach with her. It's, it's a point of connection. It's a source of communion. So for me, the, the movie tied together those aspects of intellectual life in a way that I wanted to uh, emphasize. Uh, and it's also a delightful film. Uh, so I recommend it. Uh, that's what I got out of it. There's um, there's a way in which it uh, is uh, beautiful, uh, beautifully follows uh, Socrates uh, move in the Republic, where he, rather than to speak about the soul, he has to speak about the city. Um, and in this way, we to speak about the soul, you have to speak about uh, Renee and her secret in her room, her private room. That That's right. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I thought about Plato's Republic a lot. <laughs> I was writing this book and uh, it affects my thinking in some dramatic ways and some more subtle ways. But that is one of them that I wanted to think about the soul. I wanted to use images um, that might uh, pull people forward uh, into thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, I wanted to, one of the images that's classic for the soul is the image of the community. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's well said. And of the, and of this, private of the private cell in our mind um which exists um in the uh, in the world the world of perceptions um which relies upon the perception of reading uh but then is also in some weird way apart from it exactly so part of what i think some uh, readers or hearers when it, back when it was a lecture or a talk have struggled with is that when I say something like withdrawn from the world, it sounds like I'm uh, describing something impossible or something inhuman. Whereas in fact, I'm using those words to describe uh, a contrast in the types of experience that we have. That is, I think we have experiences that are more or less inward. Uh, As you say, they're still involved the mind. They still involve perception. Um, but they are different in character than uh, outward-directed experiences, which I'm thinking of as being basically competitive experiences or experiences of striving. Or uh, the, the world is, I'm using in a uh, Platonist or a Christian sense as being the locus of competition, uh, the locus of social status. Uh, it's It's much narrower than... Uh, the whole world uh, mm-hmm. or the natural world. Um, so R- Renee, also the, 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 the image is, is so much of uh, also of a monastic cell. That's right. Um, and I, I was just looking at for, for a separate podcast and for a late interest, I was looking at a floor plan of the first building at Harvard uh, <laughs> and everyone has a little study, which is like a walk-in closet. Um, yes. And it's a monastic. And I'm like, God, they, they copied. Maybe this is the way Cambridge was in, in 1630, but they copied a sort of monastic cell design. There's a sort of a cell within a cell. There's a little space to go and read, um, which is uh, part of this as well. Uh, and this is ascetic. Well, let me read, read you to yourself. You say the asceticism of intellectual life is related to what we might call the asceticism of life in general. The cancer may or may not respond to treatment a woodworker or an engineer must accept the limitations of the materials, regardless of the grand vision he or she began with. There are some stains that just will not come out, no matter how important the garment. Uh, so what's the asceticism of intellectual life and how is it? how does it dovetail, match the asceticism of life? Well, I think it helps. The image of the monastic cell or of the private reading room, I think is quite helpful because a monastic cell, from what I, I guess I suppose I've never been in one. You're not uh, technically supposed to be if you're not a monk. But uh, I've been in similar things. I've been in things uh, in Madonna House that are called pustinias, little prayer cabins or prayer rooms. They're very simple. There's nothing in them. Uh, And there's a way in which that feels like a deprivation. Um, you're enclosed. That is, you're not outside. Um, it's not decorated. It doesn't have your screens, your phones, your uh, all of your portals into uh, other spaces. It's just four walls and a floor and a ceiling and maybe a desk and maybe a bed um, and, uh, you know, maybe something to eat. <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, it's very, very simple. And that deprivation in the monastic tradition 
uh, allows for uh, a certain parts of ourselves to open up. Uh, so when we can no longer uh, reach out through our distractions, when we can no longer um, uh, get engaged in activities which uh, are competitive or superficial, we have to face ourselves. We have to go on an inward journey. And intellectual life has a very similar effect. Okay, so what are you doing, for instance, if you're reading a book in your study? Well, you're looking at some marks of black on white on a page. Uh, you're not looking at much, but your restriction of your environment opens up something else to you. That is, it opens up the world that's in the book. It opens up thinking. So... Um, there's a variety of ways where uh, thinking, the use of the mind, really only functions well when we are deprived of other things that we might want. Our desires compete with one another. Our desires to eat, our desires to sleep, our desires um, for social interaction, our desires for distraction. Uh, so in order to do something in a focused way, we have to give something up or give up a number of things. So it's that very simple way that intellectual life is ascetical. And in that very simple way, it's like anything else that requires focus. It's like mm -hmm. athletics. It's like um, doing your job well. You have to make choices uh, and put yourself under a kind of discipline or you end up being pulled in a thousand directions at once uh, and uh, living a life that's that's scattered and uh, 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 emotionally devastating in a, uh, a way that I think we can all recognize. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about two things before uh, we do anything else. And uh, I think they're related to your philosophical approach. I'm saying that tentatively because I'm not licensed to discuss those things. Um, <laughs> uh, can I give you a license here? Here's a license. Thank you so much. I have temporary <laughs> license. Excellent. Uh, you, can, um, you can keep it. Uh, yeah, I can fake it for a little bit. Um, so, uh, I mean, an intellectual historian once said to me, look, Al, all intellectual historians are failed philosophers. <laughs> yeah, we just weren't smart enough. Well, um, well, uh, yeah. yeah, all philosophers so, are failed podcasters. So yeah, there they go. Uh, that's, that, that's deeply sad. Um, but first, you, you uh, these are both uh, things I think you derive from uh, Aristotle. Uh, and first is your approach to thinking about ends. What is it and how does it affect your the way that you are thinking and I mean, you're teaching about the intellectual life? Well, let's start with a, a simple example from the sort of educational end of my book, uh, which is thinking about what education is for. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of what you read or hear uh, nowadays will tell you that education is for job training, yep. which usually means uh, making money. Uh, primarily for someone else, but maybe also for you. Uh, and uh, that's a particular end. That is, that's a goal that your education is designed for by others. And it, it's a goal that shapes the way that you yourself undertake it. Now, my thought is that there are other goals for learning. Here's one that's very important. You learn in the old-fashioned sense, for its own sake. That is, you learn for yourself. You learn for your personal growth. You learn to see the world differently, to live a better life, um, to develop your human capacities to see and to understand and to make choices. Uh, that's learning for its own sake. So if that's your goal, you're going to go about it differently than you would education for job training. And if you're setting up an institution for that type of learning, then you're also going to set it up differently. So what Aristotle thought was that um, the goal of an action was central to defining what it is and how to undertake it. That's one of his central insights. And that's uh, one basic way that I use it in my own thinking about learning and why it matters. Okay, we'll, we'll get, get to that because um, anybody who's a parent with a high school aged child is now probably tuning out. Um, 
we'll listen to Joe Rogan at this point. Um, and no, come back, come back. Yeah, exactly. But we'll we'll get to that because it's still it's important to think about. We we want to think about something, what it means to do something which is an end in itself, uh, because that is. Uh, and it means that the act becomes incredibly more important. Have I got that right? I think that's right. Uh, well, it. I suppose the argument that Aristotle makes in the in uh, his famous book and most readable book, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, <laughs> is, uh, it is the most readable one for sure. Uh, um, and uh, he makes an argument that if your life, which I repeat in the book or formulate for myself. If your life is structured entirely around um, an instrumental good, like making money or um, acquiring a bit of status in the world or uh, becoming healthy, say, like, so if, you're, if your life is dedicated to things which are really a means to an end, then your life is pointless. That is the point of these instrumental activities is to reach something which is for its own sake. So an end which is for its own sake has a special role in a person's life. It's uh, something to which something else is, is subordinated. Now, there's, a, I think, a pretty simple way of thinking about this. Um, why am I, okay, so my education is to get a good job, it's to make money. Why am I making money? Well, what for? Uh, well, it can't be just to make more money and it can't be to support the lifestyle, which allows me to make money because then my life is empty. It's pointless. Now, I think most people actually already have an idea of what the, their final end is. And it's often something like their families. Um, they have a certain, uh, spirit of togetherness of loving one another in their family and their work supports that time, uh, now, I think that's a perfectly uh, reasonable goal. That's an intrinsic good. That's something that's good for its own sake. And it's worthy of ordering the other things that you're doing. But many people, especially many young people, do get caught in these kind of traps where everything they're doing is for the sake of something else. Uh, and very ambitious people, especially career-driven people, uh, you just, you get into some, you're, you're working all the time and you're never savoring the fruits of your labor. And that's a sign that something has gone off. You're not living a fully human life unless there's something that you're doing, which everything else is for the sake of. Hmm. Um, what do you mean by leisure in the course of this? Um, and yes. how, yeah, go on. Uh, so leisure is what Aristotle calls the thing that is not work, that work is for the sake of. Huh. So work and leisure are filling the same roles in what I just said as things which are uh, for the sake of something else versus for the sake of themselves. There's another example he uses um, in this context. He says war is for the sake of peace. Now, we've all lived in or heard of communities which don't seem to realize this. War is endless. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And you fight more wars for the sake of fighting more wars for the sake of fighting more wars. Now that's a society that's lost its compass, right? Mm. So a war ought to be fought for the sake of peace. And what happens in peace? All the things that happen in uh, a peaceful community, um, industry and families and study and art and all of the human endeavors that can be supported by a time of peace. So that's a, it's a parallel type of argument that Aristotle is making that um, we need to think about what a human life is for. I mean, what what are we living for? And however we determine to answer that question, that answer has to be guiding uh, in the activities that we choose, um, in the kind of work that we undertake. Um, otherwise, we get trapped again in these um, cycles of anxiety and work, which will never satisfy us. Mm -hmm. Leisure, um, this is, uh, of course, a, a lot of people have, have, have held this view when you start to scratch it. I, I was um, scratch at the historical record. You'll find out lots of people have, have bought into this. Um, they're usually called gentlemen. <laughs> um, this, is the, this is sort of the, this is the Roman distinction between the liberal and the servile arts. That's right. Um, and that the liberal arts are those worthy of free men. 
and there are servile arts because there are arts there that are those of slaves, the servers. Um, so uh, how are you democratizing this concept of leisure? I mean, in the 18th century, the idea of leisure was you have lots of rents. Um, you're a gentleman. You don't have to work. That's and right. then there's a, but then on the other hand, there's a considerable cultural pressure to actually do something with your time, um, <laughs> serve in politics, uh, go off to the war, uh, you know, write Declaration of Independence, something like that. <laughs> right. So I, um, I think this is a central question because I, um, one of the things I've heard most often in criticism is that my way of thinking of learning for its own sake is somehow elitist. And it's elitism, it's it's being connected to the life of a gentleman or a life that's not servile. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. Mm -hmm. um, and Aristotle thought that in the ideal city, you'd have some people doing the dirty work so that everyone else could go around and do their leisurely human pursuits. Um, now, that's not uh, acceptable to uh, contemporary, most contemporary liberal, small liberal thinking, but it was really turned upside down by Christianity. So a lot of, I do am democratizing it, but I'm democratizing it in a way that's also traditional. So the, this distinction between work and leisure is picked up by uh, the Roman philosophers, the Stoics, uh, and then by Augustine, um, the great Catholic philosopher, and then further by Aquinas. And uh, because with the advent of Christianity, uh, each individual becomes uh, sacredly important, uh, it's no longer acceptable to sacrifice the happiness of one person for the happiness of another. Um, so uh, the way I think about it is this. These old guys, the, the proponents of gentlemen, uh, were right about work and leisure. They're right that... You need some activities that are, are the culmination of your life. Otherwise, your life is meaningless. But uh, they were wrong that uh, you couldn't, say, work with your hands or do menial types of labor and pursue leisure. So, in fact, work with your hands is uh, opens up space for thinking. Uh, every, everyone who gardens or does woodworking or has any kind of craft knows this. That's when your mind is free to think, when your hands are busy. Uh, so you can work while you think. You can, uh, I'm sorry, think while you work. You can, um, if, you, if you live in a society with a, a modicum of justice, you have a bit of leisure time in which to live the parts of your life that matter. Uh, so my, it's not an innovation of mine, but I follow the tradition that says that this, this kind of uh, a leisured life is something that everyone needs. Uh, it's for everyone. It's not just mm -hmm. for gentlemen. I, th I think also we can forget how e even until rel very recently in terms of human history, uh, the act of uh, subsistence farming, which was uh, done by most people yeah. um, to provide, is an act of, inc well, um, I think I probably told the story on the podcast. Um, a friend of mine whose dad retired from farming and was taking a walk and it started to rain and he said, this is the first time in my life. I don't care if it's raining or not. <laughs> um, if you like multiply that, uh, those cares of whether it's raining, what the sun is doing, what the, what you multiply that by a thousand, you have sort of the life of right. the small farmer. Right. Uh, that's incredible psychological burden. Yes, and right. there is not a lot of leisure in that. So leisure is just in a way, it, in a certain sense, it's just downtime. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, we're, we're talking about really small amounts. I mean, practically speaking, even for the effort, the ability to think and the ability to re reflect and the ability to all, do all the other things that are, um, that are a part of thought. I think that's right. So there are, um, material economic conditions that make leisure possible. I'm not so sure. I wish I knew more. I feel a little bit like I'm stepping out of my depth if I'm talking about farming. But the farmers I knew when I when I lived on a monastery in Canada, I know I'm not going to talk about my life later, but um, <laughs> the, the, the winter, um, which in Canada was long, was a more peaceful time for them. That's true. Uh, and it was the farmers in the community I lived who actually were the most philosophical, who uh, read in the evenings or who read in the winter. So I, I guess I want to, on the one hand, signal that I know that material conditions matter, but on the other hand, to really encourage anyone who's overloaded by work that 
um, it is possible in many, many cases to carve out that space uh, for leisure. Well, let's talk about the uh, carving out that space. Um, we'll go back to that um, wonderful depiction of different worlds. And one of them is um, the worlds inhabited by the Virgin Mary, particularly in Flemish paintings from the 15th century. Um, what, I, and I, I, this is like one of those things lie in plain sight that I should have realized, but I didn't. Because <laughs> um, she's usually reading a book. Can you talk about that? What you make of that? Uh, absolutely. Well, I, um, there's actually a story from my life that's connected that I don't tell often. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, uh, so my um, my grandparents uh, were were all atheists, uh, all four of them, uh, and my grandmother was an art collector. Uh, she died in uh, 2000, and shortly before she died, I was helping her pack up her house. She was moving into assisted living, and she had all this very modern, abstract art. That was the kind of art she liked. Then she had this one statue that her father had given her. Of it was clearly a, some kind of religious Christian statue of a woman holding a book, and I said, "Oh, Grammy, I, that statue's beautiful. Can I have that statue? You know, if you're if you're ready to let go of it." She said, "Okay." So I took it, and then I tried to find out who the saint with the book was. Uh -huh. <laughs> after years, after years, I had the statue for years. I became Catholic. Finally, I figured out some years after being Catholic that it was the Virgin Mary and that the image was probably from the Annunciation when she's holding the book. So that got me obsessed. I wanted to know why. And so I, um, I, I was supposed to be doing something else. I was supposed to be writing a scholarly article of some kind or other. And uh, as always happens, I did this other project, which was much more fun and exciting at the time. So what it turns out is that the tradition goes back to the church fathers. It's as old as Origen, who's one of the earliest fathers in the second century AD. Um, and what they, they wanted to describe the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation and what that experience was like for her. So the angel Gabriel arrives, he uh, tells her that she's going to bear a child. Um, she asks what it could mean. She's puzzled, she's worried. And then she says famously, you know, I am the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done unto me according to thy word. Uh, so it's that scene, which she's most often seen holding a book. That she's reading a book and the angel comes. And the tradition is that she knew uh, the scriptures well enough. She, was, she knew how to read and she loved to study and she was wise. And she knew the prophecies of Isaiah. So she knew that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. Um, so she knew when the angel comes, she knows the story into which she's fitting. Um, and it's her learning, it's her wisdom um, that the book is drawing on. Sometimes the book is Isaiah, sometimes it's the Psalms, um, but it's her being immersed in the scriptures. Um, that and she's often shown too, I mean, this is, I realized, it, it, there's a, it's a wonderful book called The Scholar and His Study about the way in which people are shown reading in the Renaissance. And it turns out they're often shown in really realistic depictions of Renaissance studies. Um, there's a cure. I, I forget now the the Venetian artist who painted Augustine in the study, but there's a Botticelli who painted Augustine and Jerome. Right. And they're shown with all the appliances of a modern Renaissance study. And so as often as Mary. I mean, she's shown with a preview right. or something like that, but, but sometimes, you know, more elaborate desk. Uh, she's really, she's, she's hard at work uh, thinking. I know uh, that's right. One of the things I think is beautiful about that and is, is worth keeping in mind. So the other figure who's pictured studying apart from Augustine or Jerome in this, this era of painting is, um, well, St. Jerome, but he's often pictured in the desert, right? So he's yes, in the cave yes. in, in Palestine. Um, there's a lion, maybe the lion that mm -hmm. he um, pulled the pod, but he's the desert scene is quite different than the scenes of Mary where she's always in a domestic situation. She's always in a, a house, occasionally in a church, um, but next more, to a garden. more or next to a garden, but, but often in a home. And so you get the sense that she has a space in her home mm -hmm. where other people live. Um, that's marked off for her own, her inner space, her inner world, her inner life, her studies, her prayers, uh, where she ponders over her experiences. So that's what I think that enclosure means. It's 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 again, it's it's like Renee's study in the Hedgehog. It's a it's an image of 
the the inner life, the garden enclosed that that our soul, where our soul is meant to to commune with God, and where our mind is meant to to reach truth. Okay, and now for a, a very different uh, world, um, you write about a a young German working in the Swiss patent office, and um, he is beset with cares. Uh, he wishes he was an academic. He wishes he had a position at some proper university. Um, he has, I guess, a lot of patent work to do. I'm never quite certain about that aspect of it. It's not, it's not often discussed, um, but he takes the elevator to work every day, and he thinks. That's right. So, um, so yes, I, I always like to, when I've, when I've, I like to tell this story when I'm talking to students on college campuses, because there's always a couple of graduate students who don't know that Albert Einstein couldn't get an academic job. You know, I think every, <laughs> every grad student should know this. All you they, guys, they, it's not true that he was bad at math as a child, but it is true. <laughs> they couldn't get an academic job. He could not get an academic job. He couldn't get along with his supervisors. He wouldn't. He was an unconventional person. Uh, they didn't think that he was as smart as he thought he was. Uh, and he had a family, so you know he got to the point where he was really desperate to support himself. Uh, he got this job in a patent office. My understanding is that he did the patent work in the mornings, so he would get it all done sort of early, and then he would sit and think about his his physics work. And it was in the patent office where he did his most famous, uh, most important work. I work on the photoelectric effect, the theory of special relativity. All of that was done uh, while he was in the patent office. Uh, so, and he and, called and- it—he called it his worldly cloister, which I love because it ties back to uh, the Virgin Mary. It ties back to uh, Rene and the concierge. Yeah, these little spaces where we. Um, are withdrawn from other things, but we reach into the depths um, and and see things as they are. It um, it's a lovely story for other reasons. I mean, it's a, a person who was who became intellectually fulfilled and and changed the world um, while having a day job. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and somehow found the the leisure. Yeah. Uh, the space, the space within himself as well as within his office to actually engage in that thought is it's a b- beautiful thing. It is beautiful. And there, there's so many stories like that. I mean, I feel like every day I turn around and I see another one. So the, um, the poets are famous examples. So Frank O'Hara was, uh, art curator, um, at the museum of modern art. Uh, he wrote poems during lunch, right? Uh, during his lunch break, he'd write poems. Or Wallace Stevens, the insurance agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's uh, many, many people uh, have worked day jobs and have, in their spare time, done what really mattered to them. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I thought when I was reading your book of Eric Hoffer, the longshore philosopher from uh, longshoreman philosopher from San Francisco, who um, Basically, as he was a itinerant laborer in the 30s, just got la- um, library cards everywhere he went and, and read and read and read. And then uh, while still working as a longshoreman, began to, um, to write and uh, sort of works of popular philosophy. Yeah, um, isn't that fabulous? Wow. Yeah. Um, so this one final uh, world, um, you tell a wonderful story about Peregrine Falcons, um, a man following Peregrine Falcons around England. I never heard of this fellow. I never heard of this, but I, I really have to read his book just the way I have to watch The Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes, this was something I came across relatively late. And I I, uh, I may as well say this out loud. The, the book is meant to be uh, a book that, in, my own book, meant to be a book that encourages you to read other books. So there's a <laughs> mixture of classics, which people may or may not have read in college or in some other way, and some things which may or may not be more familiar. And so so John Baker, who is the per, the poet of the Peregrine Falcon, you might say, mm-hmm. is someone who's a bit less known, at least in the US. Uh, he was one of these people with day jobs. He, was at, uh, he worked at the British equivalent of AAA, the Automobile Association. Uh, he worked there for years, and in his spare time, he went out on his bicycle and chased peregrine falcons. Uh, and he never went to university. Uh, he was, um, you know, I think he had his his job, his wife, and his bicycle and the falcons. And he wrote this um, incredible book based on his uh, experiences called The Peregrine. Uh, and it's a very profound meditation on... Um, 
how a human being is or isn't a part of nature, what it means to really study an animal or a natural object, um, what's the nature of animal predation. You know, so peregrine falcons are uh, raptors, they're predators. So a lot of what he's watching is them hunting little little animals or hunting other birds. Um, and he's fascinated by this violence. He wants to understand how that kind of violence can be innocent and human violence not innocent. Uh, so it's it, he finds the you know this incredible depth uh, in these birds and in this this activity of bird watching, which he undertakes over some years. And I, I understand that by talking about Einstein and 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 Baker and other um, naturalists or uh, and physicists and, and people working on observing and thinking about the natural world, you're emphasizing that this is not just a this is not just for our, us humanities geeks. No, I I wanted very much. I have examples of mathematicians also. I wanted very much to uh, bring out the fact that uh, it's not just the humanities that we study for its own sake. So the you know the humanities has its own crisis with a capital C. We have the crisis in the humanities, and it's very serious. Our enrollments are down, and so on. But math and science also have a theoretical aspect. That is, they are also contemplative activities. They're not just there to build us new, you know, whatever the next iPhone is, you know, I-Eyes or I-Nose or whatever it's going to be. Um, they, they're they there to help us think about the world and our place in it. Uh, they're objects of, they present to us objects of contemplation. And I wanted to, rest, to, um, emphasize that because it's not not often said in books about the humanities. Mm -hmm. um, well, I want to touch on this briefly. Um, you talk about the relationship between poverty and thought. Um, you say, we have lost the power even of imagining what the ancient liberty of poverty could have meant, the liberation of poverty could have meant. Uh, what do you mean by how does that apply to in the intellectual life? Oh, that's a great, <laughs> great question. No, Sorry. <laughs> You did say that a little bit. Uh, I think the interest in poverty is has to do with asceticism. So uh, if you think about the, the Einstein example for a minute, uh, Einstein does his best work, not when he, I mean, well, actually he does pretty good work later too. But this work that he does is not when he's um, sailing through the academic hierarchy. It's not when he's famous. It's not when he's wealthy. Um, it's when he's deprived of the things that he uh, otherwise would want. And part of my thinking is that um, it's these conditions of deprivation which can allow us to get into the depths. And that, that means, I think, it has really two edges in my thinking. One is asceticism that's in some way deliberate. That is, can we in our own lives, our own middle-class lives, if that's if we're privileged enough to lead them, um, how do we strip away the superfluous and the distracting and really live for what really matters? Uh, so that's a type of embrace of poverty. That is, you, you, you're, you're not chasing um, this or that luxury anymore. You're not thinking about how your house can be just as fancy as everyone else's. You're not distracted by that kind of stuff. You're focused on what really matters. That's a deliberate choice. But what I also really wanted to bring out, in, in case it's not already clear from the examples, is that uh, when we talk about intellectual life as being a route to success, as our educational uh, authorities uh, are beating us uh, over the head with all the time, we're missing out that part of what education is for is for failure. That is, we may, especially these days, look at our world, it's a colossal mess. Um, we may find ourselves really without many resources and our, the life of the mind, the life of study, um, these are always there for us. Um, they are uh, riches, so to speak, that we can carry inside of us no matter what happens to us. Uh, and I think uh, we need to think about what our modes of resilience are. And I think that intellectual life is one of them. So that's two dimensions of poverty, probably not getting to the bottom of it, but at least scratching the surface. Yeah, it, it took me, uh, took teaching um, in a prison 
to realize that the sort of people I was teaching in the great text course, um, Socrates, uh, Dante, uh, Hobbes, Locke, that a lot of these guys have been in prison or or exile. That's and right. those were the conditions under which they wrote. That's um, right. And if you keep on looking through, you realize, oh, yeah, he was, uh-huh, that was <laughs> secretaries in government. Yeah. He was exile. Uh, yeah. and, and, of course, my students, and they, they picked up on this. I mean, even uh, in, in much more less obvious cases than, say, teaching, I don't know, Solzhenitsyn or um, – uh, the, you know, uh, Arthur Kosler, uh, Darkness yeah. at Noon. Um, there's much more um, subtle ways you can discover that there's a um, an often unintentional poverty, right? Uh, that uh, that thinkers have to go through. They're impoverished uh, in in spiritual ways as well at the moment of crisis that leads to their thought. Yeah, I think that's right, and I I find that um, encouraging, honestly, because. <laughs> yeah. It, whenever I'm, I'm extremely frustrated, as most of us are these days. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can't do that you might want to do. Um, the, you know that, that that frustration can give birth to uh, imagination, creativity, enterprise, ways of thinking, uh, ways of contemplating, uh, forms of self-knowledge, all kinds I, of things. I have noticed something interesting. When people said that back when the pandemic began and isolation yeah. began, people say, don't take this time to read a book or yeah. write something or do something creative. There was an immediate pushback yeah. from people. <laughs> oh, we don't tell me that. Uh, and it's interesting because there's, there's on the one side, I can see what they're thinking. They're, the people are saying, well, you know, Newton, he came up with this <laughs> while he was like, right, while he was sheltering from the plague. He, he came up with it. Um, so there's one way in which it's a very 21st century, like check the box of achievement. That was like, take this time to become more thoughtful and spiritually balanced and catch up on your yoga. Um, so there's another achievement to be, to be, to be gained. On the other hand, I think some of that pressure wasn't just a, the, the media pushback wasn't just against achievement culture. It's uh, to get back to Pascal again. It's my favorite quote that all the ills of man can come to this, that he cannot stand to be alone in an empty room. That's um, right. Um, and this is a time of empty rooms, uh, despite Netflix. There's only so much streaming <laughs> services you can watch. And being right. in an empty room, it sucks. Yeah. Um, if there's yeah. no resolution to it, if you're not using it. I think that's right. And I, I think it's helpful to to hear the achievement culture edge of that. You know, it's like, well, you're not going to waste this time, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they call it quarantine, but yeah. I call it quarantine can do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, it, that's right. I, I also it was a I had a funny experience with it because um, I myself uh, was really, especially for the first couple of months, really kind of paralyzed by anxiety. Uh, I have, I was not able to read or study despite the fact that I had written a book about it that came out during the time. <laughs> so I, I do think that um, it's important to think about it. It's, it's, I think these things come by grace, honestly. So you, you're very frustrated. Uh, you can't make yourself sit down and write Newton's Principia. That's ridiculous. Uh, you have to hey, speak, speak for yourself. Go on. Oh, I mean, you have, but <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I, I haven't yet been <laughs> able to write it. Um, and I think you need to reach a point of surrender where you um, you're not trying to control your environment anymore. You're not wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. Will this still be going next week? What, you know, what's this, what's that? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Now that anxiety may not be under your control. For instance, you might be about to lose your job and you can't stop thinking about it. Um, but I do think that you can get to a point where, uh, you just give up and that's the point where you can start figuring out how to make use of what you have, um, and how to work with the silence, work with the emptiness, work with the room, work with the loneliness and find out what it can give you. Um, mm. and that's not, that's really not easy. So I think, I think there's something understandable about the reaction that is, you sure. Can, no, no, I, I get that. The idea that I you mean, just sit down and sit down and write, um, you know, the Einstein's paper on the photoelectric effect—that's not really 
necessarily. No, I mean, this, is the, this is the beauty of teaching Pascal. Like, you know, right. when you teach him four or five times and you realize, oh, yeah, he's criticizing our, our inability to be in an empty room, but he's also very understanding of it because right. we're surrounded by infinite space and it terrifies me. So, of, <laughs> of course, we want to divert ourselves, you know, right. but, but right. we do have to realize that. I think, I think that moment of recognition, honestly, is crucial. As long as you know, right now, I'm distracting myself. And that's understandable. That's human. But it's a distraction. I, want, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. That's, I think, very helpful. That's a little wedge against getting sucked into uh, down a rabbit hole that you can't get out of. Mm -hmm. um, how does thinking lead to community? Uh, the uh, examples that you've given uh, just uh, before of the Virgin Mary and Einstein and and uh, uh, Renee and uh, Baker and the Peregrine Falcon, these are all, all people alone. And um, we see thinking as a uniquely solitary act, um, uh, yet it's not. Um, could you explain why not? Yeah, I think that's really important. I'm glad that you brought that out. Um, I had not realized we'd gotten we'd gone so far down the solitary route. I think it's something I've been thinking about more recently. You know, since the book was done, how in any book, and reading is one of the you know one of the fundamental forms of study. There are other ones, but it's it's, it's fundamental. Uh, any book has another person in it. That is there's an author who is communicating with you. Now, how we think about that communication and how we approach it uh, varies in different contexts. It depends on the type of book and so on. Um, but it's still, you are, there is a, a communion and a connection just in the act of reading. Uh -huh. I think it's also true. So someone like John Baker, who, you know, studied the Peregrine Falcons, he uh, loved poetry and literature um, and I think, and he read, of course, there's a, a whole, um, a whole tradition of, uh, literature about raptors, about falconry, um, which he takes into himself and is taking along with him. So he, he too is not really alone. He's working, um, out of the thinkers of the past, out of other bird watchers. He's thinking with poets. He's thinking with Herman Melville, who's a huge influence on him. Um, even you know, someone like Einstein is working within the community of mathematicians. He's isolated in a certain way, but he couldn't do what he's doing without there being uh, a history of physics, a history of mathematics, a history of thinking about nature. Um, and so there's a kind of communion, even with dead people or absent people, that intellectual life brings out. And that I think it also naturally gives rise to in-person connections with living people. So we always learn better with others, I think. Um, you know, we have these lovely traditions at St. John's where I teach and also in my field of classical philosophy where you, you sit around a table and everyone's reading the same thing and you try to hammer out what's going on. Uh, it's the kind of thing you see in very ordinary contexts in church Bible studies or in book clubs. There's something about other people that um, brings our ideas to birth, uh, helps them grow, helps us to see who they are, helps us out of ways of thinking that, that might not be fruitful and helps us find the paths that are fruitful. And I think it is in that way, a very crucial mode of communion and a mode of common ground uh, a basis for certain kinds of connection and community. And that's fundamental to the the way that I think about it in the book. Yeah. It's uh, the ability to um, stand side by side and look at the same thing and love it. Exactly. It's, cer it's yeah. certainly the basis of friendship. Exactly. Exactly. So um, that love and learning and contemplating are very bound up with one another. Yeah. In fact, you say they we go we, they yeah. go in a variety of directions. I mean, there's a way in which you don't love without learning. There's a way that you don't learn without loving. Uh, it's it, it, it cannot, you know. Don't ask me to to hammer out the exact order, uh, but I, I I think there's no question that it's well. well you do say we learn in order to love, which, I, which is an order. <laughs> I know, but that's just words. Okay, you mm. know, I wrote once. I, uh, no, I. <laughs> 
I don't know. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think you're paraphrasing Augustine, um, who, right. who said, right. uh, tell me what you love and I'll tell you who you are, um, which is better. Bria Savaran turned into tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. But I think I prefer Augustine. But, um, <laughs> well, he but has yeah. a beautiful, well, he has a beautiful um, phrase that I know that I do quote in the book where he says something like, uh, people would have no way of pouring their souls into one another. They would have no mode of unity if they didn't learn anything from one another. So mm -hmm. that also supports the order of learning for the sake of love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can do that if we want, or we can love for the sake of learning either way. Um, so let's, as we're, we have to start wrapping things up here, but before, um, before we move on to the depressing parts, um, <laughs> let's, uh, could you sort of sum up, uh, you, why you believe that, um, that thinking that thought is an essential good for human beings, even if, if even if just one good among others. Right. So, um, I think that part of it is our thinking involves the development of our perceptions, uh, the development of our ability to uh, understand, to choose. Um, it's in a way, um, it's so connected with our the development of our human capacities. I mean, that's what learning is, uh, that in a way I end up sort of collapsing on my own language and saying what sounds like a repetitive or a, or a self-referential thing. That is, you know, it's um, our awareness of what's going on is uh, sometimes the only thing that we have. Uh, it can develop us in all kinds of ways that are obviously beneficial, Okay, so learning how to see birds, learning how to smell uh, the differences between different chemicals, if you're a chemist. Yeah, um, it's a primo levy at, in, his, in his factory. Exactly. I, I, I thought about that because this is, to get back to, the, the, just to mention this, the title of the podcast, Historically Thinking, uh, I thought of that because um, uh, the the bird thing, uh, when I was teaching at Augustana College, uh, college a colleague of mine uh, was down, who uh, spent a lot of time on the river, on the Mississippi River. Um, he was down in um, uh, the bottoms of the Mississippi uh, with an ornithologist from the biology department. And Ruben was listening. He says, you know, hey, I think I, I hear five different kinds of bird song. How, how many do you hear? And our colleague, the ornithologist, sort of tilts his head and listens. He says, uh, 35, maybe, thir maybe 38. <laughs> And I always gave that as an example of historical thinking. Uh, thinking leads to seeing. Um, just like Primo Levi in the paint factory, he can smell all those things. Yes. Um, that's that's what his thought led to. It, it was perception which led to think through, through thinking, went back into perception, and which made all of a sudden uh, every, uh, the world was, became a much more interesting place. Yeah. So I, I think that there's that kind of answer, which is to say that thinking opens up uh, goods that we can receive from the yes. world or from each yes. other. But I, I also think that the Pascal quote that you read at the beginning has a, a bleaker point of view, but one that I think is also true. That is, um, even just to be aware that you are a fragile, vulnerable thing that will die is somehow your dignity can lie in that alone. Um, that is, a rock can't do that. And a rock is just as destructible as you are. I mean, it's a longer life, maybe, but uh, oh. it's it's not going to live forever. Um, and there's something about that that I think is, is very profound. And uh, the recognition, the awareness of what is going on around you and the awareness of who you are has its own dignity in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's also part of the essential human good of thinking, I think. Yeah, it's just, we, we don't have time. There's so much in your book to get into. This is, But this also relates in a way to free speech and to open uh, expression on campus. Um, uh, it's, that's right. It, because um, it, 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 one, uh, I'm much more closer to, I'm much closer to being a free speech absolutist than I ever have been in my life right now. Right. Um, I am frustrated, however, the fact that that is never that's all, that's seen as an end. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and what I see it as is uh, 
Uh, we don't know if dolphins are talking to another. There's been a lot of research about that, but I yes. suspect in the end, they're just saying, hey, more fish. Um, they're, <laughs> they're over here, um, which is cool. Uh, that's great um, right. for the dolphins. Uh, but uh, so we are still a lonely animal in that we are able to communicate f from one mind to the other. Right. Um, and uh, and to deprive us of that dignity is uh, it, it's a great deprivation. I think that's right. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Now we can get to the the uh, the, the, the the sad part. Um, the. I don't know if you've noticed uh, out there, but sometimes the best place to do thinking is not in school. <laughs> um, yeah, that's and, true. And uh, at least uh, it, I didn't find it that way. I found it that way uh, until I was about 18 and went off to college. And then, wow, I was in a school where people could think. That, yeah. was, that was really awesome. Uh, changed my life. Uh, but oftentimes, college is not a place to think now either. Right. Um, you end the book with a bunch of, of sobering reflections. Um, well, sobering uh, for some, uh, sort of what a lot of us already believe, which is always satisfying to read someone else say. <laughs> Uh, but exactly. what was uh, what was great was to read your gloss on Aristophanes the Clouds, which made me immediately go and, and reread it. Yeah. So could you describe uh, like how Aristophanes is like he's talking about us he somehow in the 440s, 450s. He's talking about us. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It's what it's one of these moments where, you know, that uh, books open up to you. Humanity, that is, when you read something that old and in certain ways so foreign and weird. Yes. And suddenly the voice speaks and it's it's something you know. It's something you recognize. Um, and The Clouds is very much like that. So uh, The Clouds is famously a parody of Socrates. Socrates, the philosopher, um, runs a school called The Thinkery, uh, where they do all kinds of pointless things like um, measure how far fleas can jump and... Um, they try to figure out how big the world is and all kinds of things which are treated with, with appropriate mockery. And they're, they're skinny and pale and almost inhuman, um, the students. So uh, Strepsides, who's the main character of the clouds, uh, needs to get out of debt. So he's, he's, a, he's a, a farming guy. He married a rich lady um, and there's, who needs all kinds of fancy stuff. Uh, and their son is uh, sort of ne'er do well. All he does is do chariot racing, sort of high class hobbies. And he video has ga video games for video which we games, exactly. <laughs> So he has all these. His wife and his son have these kind of high lifestyle, expensive habits, and he has to. He's in debt. He has to find a way to get out of debt. So he wants uh, his son to go, and then he goes himself to the thinkery where he can learn how to make the weaker argument appear the stronger. So he can go to the law courts and uh, uh, convince the judge to let him off of his debts. So, uh, and then he becomes, over the course of the play, embittered with Socrates and the Thinkery. He's angry. His son ends up going as a student uh, and ends up rejecting his own authority. And uh, the last scene of the play is Strepsides burning down the Thinkery, which he had gone to at the beginning looking for help. <laughs> so my, my thought was that this is like us in that we want um, our colleges and universities to uh, solve our problems for us. That we, want us. we want them to tell us how to make money so we can live um, lifestyles uh, that are um, glamorous and comfortable. Through COVID. Uh, and cure COVID, uh, but um, and when they don't do things that we want them to do, uh, we uh, get angry, we get destructive, um, and we we burn them down. So it's a it's it's a and the the school presents, I think, a similar tension to the one that our universities present. Many of our universities still will use the language of learning for its own sake out of one side of their mouth, while out of the other saying. You know, really what we do is uh, get you rich and um, put you on track to succeed for the rest of your life. And these things might not be compatible with one another. So you, you, you have to, um, if you're going to be an institution with integrity, you have to figure out what your goals are and what, the, what you offer that the world doesn't offer and stick to that. And that's, it seems to me, what our universities and colleges have not done. That is, they're trying to do too many things at once. And they end up doing nothing well, 
Um, and they have a very, very low satisfaction rate. I mean, whether like, it burns them down, I don't know, but that, that, that doesn't seem like the craziest thought. Uh, not, not anymore. No. Um, and uh, I could imagine, I know just the parents to do it. Um, <laughs> the Especially because like Stripsides, uh, they spend a lot of money to go to them or get their kids to go to get out of debt, right. Uh, right. incurring more debt, which then they find difficult to get out of. Yes. It's, um, yes. it's a strange, uh, vicious circle. Um, yes. I would say that um, just to, you know, if I had five bucks for every time uh, that someone in a department meeting said how awful the business metaphors were, yes, that, that our administration, yes. I would be able yeah. to buy um, most of my listeners a nice hot dog. <laughs> um, so I, and yet those metaphors keep getting used. Right. And the people around the department table aren't using their own metaphors. And they're certainly not using the ones that you use for thought. Um, because no one seems to then have, no one really seems to trust and are able to explain why learning for its own sake is actually a good. That's right. Um, they're, in, in fact, in, so defensive about it, they don't want to talk about it. Right. Well, I I think that part of what has gone wrong, and I, I don't have a, a, a diagnosis exactly. I mean, I the, the terms I diagnose in the book are very based in individuals. You know, it's motivations. But there are obviously factors that work on a political and on an economic level that are that are beyond that, 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 that feel to me a bit above my pay grade. I don't quite understand them. I, I'm trying, mm-hmm. always trying to understand them, but I don't. Uh, but I think that universities are no longer trying to do anything distinctive. I mean, if you think about job training, for instance, now it's a bit, or all these sort of corporate partnerships, which have become very fashionable, you know, partner with a startup to do an internship, you know, so that you move seamlessly from college into Silicon Valley or something like that. Uh, Well, you have to wonder, college is a nonprofit organization, it's, or it's supported by taxpayers. It's supposed to be supporting something that can't survive in the market. And yet we're acting as if only things supporting by the market are worth doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that just doesn't make any sense. If these corporations are making tons of money, which they are, they can afford to provide their own job training. They can mm-hmm. afford to, to train people up. But why should they when universities are falling over themselves to pay for it? Um, right. So, and it's also it's also a, it's a, also a signal by the thinkatorium to a modern strepsiades. That's right. Uh, that this is the place. It's going to be okay, you know. Um, you know, megalith- Me- megalithic incorporated is it has has a finger in this pie, and so it's a, it's a delicious pie. That exactly, but they, you know, they it's there are different kinds. I mean, if there's one thing my book is assuming or reiterating, there are different kinds of goods. Money isn't bad. Money, of course, is very important. Uh, but it's not the only good in the world. Uh, money's important for the sake of other things, for the sake of art and music and study and so on. So we have to be clear about what the different kinds of goods are and why they're valuable and what kinds of institutions support them, or we're going to lose things which are really crucial for being human beings. I, um, I want to conclude with one last quote from you, um, just in case anyone who's listening thinks that, uh, that your finger is not pointing at yourself. Um, <laughs> Because uh, that's that's just moralizing. This is this yes, is exactly. this, this is moral thinking. So it doesn't you do that. The enemies of intellectual life are not simply yokels enmeshed in practical tasks who cannot understand sophisticated forms of inquiry. A real yokel is not a simple rustic, for, but someone who pursues wealth and status no matter the cost. We are ourselves the yokels. Please that's explain. Right. We have met the enemy. Uh, yes. Well, I I think it was in a way what what I was just saying, right? So it's yeah. we we think of educated people um, love to talk about the uneducated and the anti-intellectual as being the problem, but uh, if if what you love about your education is the prestige it gets you, the success it gets you, the comforts it gets you, 
then then you're part of the problem. Uh, and, and, and this applies to professors. If they can, it we applies live. very much to professors, and it applied to me. So if, if you're inviting me to – so one of the things I do in the book to avoid moralizing, which I have a natural tendency towards, which I find distasteful, is <laughs> I talk a fair amount about myself and the own struggles, my own struggles in trying to find a, a way of being an academic uh, with integrity – and uh, it hasn't been easy. It's a process. Uh, it's the temptations are many, uh, and it's not. Um, it's not about. Uh, my book is definitely not about sorting out the bad, good guys from the bad guys. It's about um, how all of us need to sort of look into ourselves and th- figure out for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, what matters. Um, and to think carefully about how to preserve the things that matter most. Um, that's in a way the, if there was a, put my book in a sentence, I would say that would be what it is. I think intellectual life is one of those things that matters most. And I, I'm, I'm very disturbed at the prospect uh, that it might um, die out or become so marginal that we no longer are able to recognize it. Well, with that, um, that very cheerful conclusion, um, <laughs> by the hope that um, it will also rise again. Uh, my, I will say that my guest today has been Zena Hits. She's the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Zena, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 